I got through the first part, okay? The goal is to get up on the platform without tripping, okay? I've done that before. On a, uh, just on a quick personal note, thank you for that introduction. Matt did allow me to write it myself, so that's why it was so magnanimous, I'll have you know. But, but Diane and I did meet at, uh, in Bible school, Grand Rapids School of the Bible and Music, that uh, is no longer there. And we used to refer to it, the initials were Grisbom, and we called it the Grand Rapids School of the Basketball and Matrimony. But it, because it was a great place, good basketball team, but a great place to meet a future wife. And then, uh, and then that kind of checkered career, checkered in a good sense, different things over the years till 35 years ago next month, I actually uh, quit my job and started seminary. So that was, uh, that was quite an adventure too. But it caused me to think this morning about uh, if I preach twice a year, that's a lot. And, and your pastors, Pastor Matt especially, preaches every Sunday. So I can spend six months preparing a sermon, which I spent about three, I guess, preparing this one, and Matt has to have one every single Sunday that the Lord speaks through, that blesses our hearts. So pray for them as you pray for this church. Think of that because they're, they're giving us the word of God through music, through the spoken word, in a way that blesses us and changes us. We're looking at Isaiah, uh, Specifically, Isaiah 53, we'll read the verses from 52.13 to 53.12. And I wanted to do this because, really, we've all had a lot going on the last couple of weeks, focusing on Christmas. A lot of times of celebration, uh, a lot of times of family being there. You may be worn out now. But just, I wanted to remind us that, really, the focus of Christmas is Easter, isn't it? Because it's all pointing to the cross. So Isaiah 53, to me, is that perfect look ahead from Isaiah at what's going to take place and what did take place at the cross. So stand with me, if you would, as we read, as I read through Isaiah 52:13 to 53:12. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the many transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Lord, speak to us today from your word. Be a comfort, be an encouragement, be a reminder of your great grace that is ours through the death and resurrection of your son who satisfied perfectly the wrath that should have been ours. Thank you for this word. Bless it to our hearts in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Let me give you a little bit of a context this morning about what was taking place during the time of Isaiah. Uh, you, now, you remember that the people of Israel had to have a king. So, so Samuel gave them a king, and they focused on Saul. And they focused on Saul because, I guess as you read, he was, he was tall, he was probably good-looking. There were some physical aspects to Saul that made the people point towards him as their king. And, of course, that didn't work out too well. And along came David, who in some ways was just the opposite of Saul because they had nothing to recommend him to the people. He was the youngest son who was out tending the sheep, and, and, but God anointed him to be the king of Israel and to be the type of Christ, the Messiah who was to come. Israel went through a number of kings after about 930 B.C., was split apart in the northern and southern kingdoms, the northern kingdom being uh, ten tribes and the southern being at least two. There were a couple of uh, Simeon joined the tribe of Judah and the Levites were considered in there too. But captivity took place in the 700s for the northern kingdom and in the 500s for the southern kingdom. This was the time that Isaiah prophesied in. Isaiah prophesied uh, and he actually died during the time of Hezekiah. So if you're a student of the word, you'll remember Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, who brought the gospel through the word back to the people of Israel. Because the gospel's in the entire Bible, right? So he brought that back to the people of Israel and was blessed by God for it. Isaiah uh, prophesied 750 years before the time of Christ. And that's going to be important to think about this morning. And there are a lot of times when we look at scripture and what took place in scripture, and we may even question it ourselves. Maybe we don't do it out loud. But sometimes the critics around us will go, like the flood. How can that be true? I mean, that's so amazing. And I can't remember where it took place. I just read something the other day that again talked about things they were finding as they were digging through archaeological sites that spoke of a great flood of some sort that uh, left sediment, that killed things and killed people. So it's there. The archaeologists find it. Well, a couple of years ago, there was an archaeologist in Israel which uh, made a real encouraging find for us and they were digging over there in the Middle East, and they found a couple of what they called bullas, which are like envelopes that contain, or, or round balls, that contain inscriptions of some sort. 
And they had found one that when they translated the inscription, it said, Isaiah the prophet. And a couple of years later, 10 feet away from that, they found another one that was stamped with King Hezekiah's stamp. So they put those two together in the same ring and actually found something. So we look at it and we go, yep, I believed it. And it's being borne out by the things they're finding. That was the time of Isaiah. I want to tell you two applications for today. And I'll do it because uh, I think they're important for us. And I'll talk about it again at the end of the sermon. Your sin has been covered by the sin bearer. That'll be one of the points. Your sin has been covered by the sin bearer. And secondly, you need to live daily reminding yourself that God's grace is for you. And if you want a chapter that does that, you'll, if you've heard me before, you'll know I'm a great fan of Romans 8. So if you want a chapter that speaks to that, for you, read Romans 8. Live with a daily reminder that God's great grace is for you. During a, uh, a time many years ago, the, uh, those who looked at the book of Isaiah said, with all the prophecies in Isaiah, it has to be true. It absolutely has to be true. And then as time went on, the textual critics who uh, in years past were pretty liberal and didn't look at the Bible as being much about truth. That's changed over the years, by the way, because over the years, very conservative believers have become textual critics by, by training also. But then the textual critics looked at Isaiah and said, you know, surely Isaiah was written after the time of Christ. That's how they knew. That's how they knew about the suffering servant. So it wasn't written before. If you've, uh, I know some of you have been to Israel. If you've been to Israel, you know where the, uh, where the Bedouins found the Dead Sea Scrolls. About 1947, as I recall. So a shepherd boy was up there and uh, saw a cave and threw a rock into the cave and instead of a thud, he heard something breaking. And that was the beginning of a great treasure trove of fragments, a lot of them are scripture. Before that time, the book of Isaiah, the oldest one we had was from about 900 AD. During that time, the fragments they found that put together were from about 1,000 years earlier. So they looked at those and they said they had to change their thinking or else ignore it, which a lot of them did. But the fragments were from before the time of Christ. And Isaiah prophesied, like we said, from 750 years before Christ. He looked ahead and said, this is what will take place. He said the Messiah will be a sacrifice for sin. Messiah will be silent before his accuser. He'll be buried with the rich. And he'll be counted among the criminals. You look at the New Testament, there are passages that bear that out. Every one of those things happen. And those aren't the only prophecies in there. So we want to tell you today that the Savior whose birth we celebrate during this season was sent specifically to bear your sin and satisfy the wrath of God. The Savior whose birth we celebrate during this season was sent specifically to bear your sin and satisfy the wrath of God. So we'll look at three things this morning. We'll look at Christ was rejected, Christ was wounded, and Christ was, our, was and is our sin bearer. He was rejected, he was wounded, and he's our sin bearer. I know you've seen cases of rejection throughout the Bible. A couple of them that come to mind for me are Jeremiah. 
If you understand Jeremiah, you'll know he's called the weeping prophet. And, uh, you know, if you were Jeremiah, it was probably something like this. Oh, no, Lord, don't make me tell those people this. I can't go and tell them this again because the things they did to Jeremiah were terrible. And he knew once again he might be down the cistern or he might be, he might be chastised by the people or by the king and something bad was going to happen to Jeremiah. But he faithfully shared the message. So Jeremiah suffered his wounds during that time and was rejected by the people, certainly. Another good one to think about in the New Testament for me is John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist came with a specific message and uh, some heard him, some did not. But at the end of his life, it was that temporal rejection, that earthly rejection that took place. Remember where Herodias uh, wanted, a, wanted a prize and it was John the Baptist's head because uh, Herod knew that he couldn't put John the Baptist to death and still not suffer a lot of uh, problems with the people for doing that. So John the Baptist was rejected on earth, accepted in heaven. How was Christ rejected? Well, let me give you three ways that I see, and they aren't the only three ways, but, but just three ways of rejection. He was rejected because he was unseemly, because he didn't have anything to recommend himself by looks. Now, if you, if you grew up during my time, and the picture may still be out there, you may remember Solomon's head of Christ. And it, it, was, a, it was a Christ-like figure who was obviously white, flowing locks, kind of looked like Fabio does today, but really, I think, had nothing to do with the real Christ, because Isaiah is pretty clear. Nothing recommended him to people by the way he looked. He was unseemly. So here was the Christ who didn't stand out in a crowd. If you get a chance to look at some of the guesses today, they're pretty interesting about what he really looked like because he's nothing like you might expect. So Christ was in some ways rejected because he didn't stand out in a crowd. Remember, Judas had to identify him with a kiss. It wasn't like the soldiers walked into the garden and said, that's the guy, he's the tallest one there, or he's got the, uh, he's got the kingly clothes on. But God used Judas to identify Christ, just as was prophesied. Mary thought he was a gardener. We don't know why. I mean, her eyes may have been blinded, but for some reason, he didn't stand out. She wasn't expecting him, right, when she went to the tomb. But he didn't stand out in a way that all of a sudden, she said, this is Jesus. At least not right away. So he was rejected for how he looked. He was rejected in some respects for his low station in life. You know, scripture tells us that. Where did he come from? He came from Nazareth, right? Did anything good come out of Nazareth? That's how they pictured Nazareth and the people who came from Nazareth. What was his father's occupation? He was a king, no. His heavenly father was. But his earthly father was a carpenter. You know, not, not a real top job, not a real low job, but nothing spectacular about that. And he himself was probably raised to be a carpenter. So he had a relatively low station in life, which is why you'll see in scripture, when he came out and spoke in the temple, he had them scratching their heads and going, is this the carpenter's son? Where does he get all this stuff? Or the first time when he's taken to the temple by his parents and, and they leave, 
I've never done that, by the way, left my child behind and not know he wasn't with me. But when they leave the temple, they go, where are you going? They go back and what's he doing? He's speaking with the leaders of the temple. He's teaching them in ways that they, uh, they were amazed at, they couldn't believe. But he still had a low station in life and in many respects, he was rejected for that low station. And then you know all too well he was rejected for his message. His message was, I'm the son of God and God in the flesh. Sometimes implied, sometimes more direct. And it stirred up the Jewish leaders, didn't it? I mean, it really got them riled up. He was rejected for healing on the Sabbath. And he gave us an understanding of what things are most important to do when it comes to what we say and what we do. Rejected for healing on the Sabbath. He was rejected for threatening to destroy the Jewish temple. Now certainly there too, they didn't understand what he meant, but they just assumed he was gonna destroy their temple. So he was rejected for his message. The gent named Rick Thompson talks about a theologian from the late 19th century named G. Campbell Morgan. I remember uh, one of the first books I got when I was headed for the ministry was G. Campbell Morgan's book on the book of Acts. And when he was just starting his ministry in the late 1800s, he had to appear before a, a board of preachers and people who might be in the audience listening to him preach. He had to pass a theological test, which he did. And then he walked into the, uh, if you can imagine it, it was a hall that seated a thousand people. And there, and he was a student preacher, first time. And there in front of him were three teachers who were gonna judge his capability and maybe 75 people out there listening to him preach. It's a pretty, uh, pretty terrifying thing for Morgan then. So he went back to look at the board in the school to see who was accepted and who was rejected. And there on that list under rejected was G. Campbell Morgan. His daughter-in-law wrote in her book, A Man of the Word, he wired to his father the one word, rejected. He wrote in his diary, one of the darkest days of my life. His father wrote back to him very quickly and said, rejected on earth, accepted in heaven, dad. Sounds like a message for you and me, doesn't it? You know, no matter what happens here, no matter what takes place in your life, and dad, of course, is the Abba father of scripture, very friendly greeting. So rejected on earth, but you know, sitting there this morning, you're accepted in heaven. To be rejected with just one of the wounds Christ was to receive. Listen to verse 5 and 6 that we read this morning. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What are some examples of wounding? We talked about rejection in the Bible. Some other examples of wounding. You know, probably the classic example to me in the New Testament is the Apostle Paul. 
Listen to this from uh, 2 Corinthians. And as I read it, just be reminded that uh, Paul refers to these wounds that he received as momentary light affliction. Momentary light affliction. Because he looked at it in terms of, of his life lived as unto Christ. What was taking place to him physically was momentary light affliction. 2 Corinthians 11, 24 to 29, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? The Apostle Paul was wounded with these momentary light afflictions. I think I'm wounded sometimes for much less than Paul had to go through, so it calls me up short to think about what Paul suffered for the gospel. Paul makes clear in Timothy that for you and me, if we claim the name of Christ, we'll suffer persecution. He doesn't say what it is. You know, if you live over someplace in Africa, the Middle East, and you claim the name of Christ, then it may be death. If you live here, it may be somebody shunning you. So there's a range of things that'll take place, but if you're open with your faith, there'll be some type of persecution sooner or later that takes place in your life. What were the wounds of Christ? First of all, he was wounded by the reaction and interaction of the Jewish leaders. Specifically, not just the times when he would teach and they would challenge him and then we'd run him out of the city, and, but I'm thinking specifically of of the path to the cross. Every Easter, Diana watches the Passion of Christ. Now I watched the first time we got it some years back and I just, I couldn't do it again. And I think I watched it finally a year or two ago, but if you watch that, the Passion of Christ, you'll see Christ beaten and scourged and bear in mind that that doesn't go as far as things actually went because scripture says he was beaten beyond recognition they couldn't even tell who it was. He was beaten so badly. The wounds of Christ through the Jewish leaders. I think he was wounded by the actions of the disciples at some time too. And he was explaining and sharing with them. And it was clear as you read scripture, there were a lot of things they just didn't understand, especially the, the three days and the, and the temple would be rebuilt. There were things they just didn't get. They doubted, remember Thomas? They denied. Peter denied. They ran. We sometimes forget that it wasn't just Peter who decided to get out of there. Scripture says it was the disciples. They all ran in terror at what was taking place. And they slept, didn't they? Jesus said, Peter, James, and John, come with me to the garden. I'm going to pray. And he came back a couple of times to wake them up. So that's how vigilant they were. So he was wounded, I think, by the actions of his disciples at times. And certainly the Hebrew word for wounding in Isaiah 
actually means pierced through. So, of course, he was wounded physically. He was wounded physically. There was the crown of thorns, which wasn't a simple, simple crown like you see maybe sometimes today, but it was actually thorns pressed down into his head so that the blood flowed around his head. He was pierced with a crown of thorns. His hands were pierced, his feet were pierced, and his side was pierced. And he did that for us. He did that for us, wounded by the piercing of crucifixions. His wounds resulted in his death, which was followed, of course, by his resurrection as our substitute. Listen to verses 11 and 12. Christ was our sin bearer. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We've talked before about uh, shadows and fulfillment of reality. So I'll just remind you that the Old Testament is a lot about the shadows. You know, they could, you can look at the Old Testament and see they didn't get entirely what was coming. How could they? But in the New Testament, you can see what was built in the Old Testament that you might call shadows was fulfilled in the New Testament. Certainly the system of sacrifices was that way because in the sacrifices they had to have a perfect lamb. Now if you and I were just left to our own devices and somebody said sacrifice a lamb and you were, you were a sheep herder, what would you do? Well, let me... Yeah, I'll take that runty little one over there that maybe has a bad leg. And, but it was very clear. God wanted the best for sacrifice. So that was the shadow that was set out in the Old Testament. You look at the perfect lamb being sacrificed. And they had to come back multiple times over the years for sacrifice. They had an annual event called, of course, they still do, called Yom Kippur. And in the time of Aaron, the plan was during the process of several sacrifices, at the end of that would be two goats. And Aaron was told the first goat will be a blood sacrifice. And that's for you and your family. Because how could those sacrificing do it the right way unless they had sacrificed for their sins first? So that was the sacrifice that was a bloody sacrifice. The second goat was the one you may have heard of before called the scapegoat. Now, you and I hear that term thrown out, thrown out a lot, especially if you say, eh, they're trying to make me a scapegoat for this, which means you know, they're just trying to put the blame on you for something that somebody else may have done. That's the picture of the scapegoat in Leviticus 16. Because after that first sacrifice, what Aaron did was he put his hands on that scapegoat and figuratively transferred the sins of the entire community to that scapegoat. And then the scapegoat was turned loose to head out in the wilderness, never to come back. That's a picture of my sin and your sin. It doesn't say God forgets your sin. It says God forgives your sin to remember it against you no more. So that's that perfect sacrifice, Christ, 
who would be our sin bearer so that God would never hold our sin against us again. Listen to Leviticus then, Leviticus 16, 20 to 22. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, that's Aaron, and the tent of meaning, and the altar, he shall pre present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Christ as our sin bearer did not have a sinful nature. We need to clearly understand that. He took our sins upon him, but it didn't speak to his nature. He didn't take on our sin nature. He knew no sin. But he satisfied the righteous requirements of God. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that's Christ, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And when I mention the offspring of Abraham, you can probably go through your mind, Matt singing, Father Abraham had many sons up here. I don't want to bring that to mind too much, Matt singing, but it's okay. So we are, we are children of Abraham. But he helps you and me, the offspring of Abraham, the father of many nations. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make Long word, propitiation for the sins of the people. Now that word propitiation, I'm not just throwing it out there because it's actually in scripture, but it's the same word in the Old Testament that's used for the covering over the Ark of the Covenant. So what it signifies to you and me is Christ covers our sins with his blood. Christ is our covering. The other important word to remember in here is another long one called imputation. And that simply means that when God looks at you, he doesn't see sin. He sees the blood of Christ. You and I have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, so that's what God sees when he looks at you. doesn't mean you don't sin. Now, I'm not speaking for you, but for me, it means I, certainly I still do, but I confess. I regain that relationship that I need with the Lord. But all the time, I have total forgiveness. I have the blood of Christ that covered me, covered my sin, and I have the righteousness of Christ that is mine. All that results in a wonderful promise from the book of Revelation. Here's what John tells us in the book of Revelation. Revelation 5, 9 through 12, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, to take the scroll, now they're talking about Christ, the only one who's worthy, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What an incredible thought. Worthy is the Lamb, Christ, who was slain for you and for me. And when you think about that, that's a pretty, uh, pretty incredible thing that Christ was slain for the millions of believers who have now come to Christ for the uncountable sin that was ours. But uh, John Piper likes to put it this way. He says, when you think about the magnitude of Christ's sacrifice and you wonder how could that sacrifice, which on the surface to me seems simple, but think about it some more because what really happened was, you know, the perfect son of God came down and became flesh, lived for 30 years and then became that three-year itinerant preacher headed towards the cross and he died and he was buried and he was resurrected for you and for me. So the way Piper does is he looks at it and says, that is so incredible because of the distance he had to come from kingly heaven down to earth, the suffering he had to go through, that gap is so infinite that only the infinite Christ could satisfy your sins and my sins. Christ, our sin bearer. So listen to the application again of this. Your sin has been covered forever by the sin bearer. If you're a believer this morning, you can hang on to that firmly. Your sin has been covered forever. If you're not a believer, you can have that. You can come to Christ today. And secondly, you need to remind yourself daily that God's grace is for you. That chapter of Romans 8 begins this way, and you probably know it, many of you as well as I do. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a comforting thought. Christ was rejected. He was wounded. He's our sin bearer that we might live before him today with a comfort and encouragement of God's grace in our lives. A lot of years ago, uh, let me think if I can count them, there's so many, but probably, uh, probably 50 years ago, there was a, a great group, and I was involved in, uh, in running some clubs in what used to be Youth for Christ and became Campus Life, out on the, uh, it was when I was stationed out on the Pacific Northwest. And there was a group called the Random Sample, and I remember the first time I heard this, they used it. You know, they, they read through this or spoke it. They actually memorized it. And I, won't, I haven't memorized it for this morning. But I want to read this to you in closing. Because this is a picture uh, in words, so not perfect, but a picture of the life of Christ and what took place. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in still another village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book, never held an office, never had a family, or owned a house. He didn't go to college, 
never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of those things one usually associates with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. When he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Over 19 centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race, the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on earth as much as that one solitary life. Pray with me, please. Lord, we come to you today because we have no place else to go. You are the giver of life. We praise you for that today. We fail, you welcome us back. And we thank you for that too. Speak to our hearts and lives this morning, and I pray for those who don't know you, that you would use this word to energize them and bring them to the faith. Thank you for those things that you give us. Thank you for your faithfulness to your word and your promises. And we bring our worship to you today and all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.